It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, that latest SpaceX rocket landing was a huge success for about three minutes. Uh, the thing took off over Texas, came down, perfect landing, started doing experiments, uh, and then blew up. There's been a lot of blowing up uh, at Elon Musk's rocket company, but they're trying to get to Mars. I think they'll eventually get there, obviously, in order to figure out what's wrong. And it has this huge rocket, which I guess makes it more volatile. I don't know. Um, unfortunately, the thing ended in flames, but uh, SpaceX not giving up. Have you followed at all this huge media buildup for the Meghan Markle and Prince Harry sit down with Oprah Winfrey? Uh, I guess it's being handled by CBS because CBS released one of the excerpts. I think the whole thing drops over the weekend. There's been daily stories uh, in the British press, naturally. And in the latest excerpt, Oprah says to Meghan Markle, how do you feel about the palace hearing you speak your truth today? She says, I don't know how they could expect that after all this time. We would just be, be silent if there is still an active role that the firm, that's what, how they call the whole royal Inc., Royal Apparatus, is playing in perpetuating falsehoods about us. If that comes with the risk of losing things, I mean there's a lot that has been lost already. Um, I don't know. You know, it can't be a coincidence that Buckingham Palace is now conducting an investigation of some allegation that Meghan bullied the staff or whatever. It does look like payback and an an attempt to kind of discredit her before the Oprah thing airs. Uh, I mean, how long has Megxit gone on now? I mean, they're in the United States. You know, get over it. But it just seems like one of these really bad divorces that never ends, that just, you know, there were more lawsuits and more acrimony and all of that. Uh, I was just on Fox earlier today talking about a want ad in the New York Times. Uh, New York Times put out a, uh, an ad for an editor uh, for the editorial page, one of the deputy or assistant editors. And it says the person has to have a sense of humor, an open mind, and a spine of steel. Well, what I said was, well, that was getting a lot of mockery because the paper's been kind of spineless in treatments of op-ed editors who deviate from liberal orthodoxy. I mean, you if you followed this at all, you know that editorial page editor James Bennett was fired for the temerity for this cardinal sin of running an online-only uh, op-ed piece by Republican Senator Tom Cotton. Uh, so that was too much diversity for the Times. It was a newsroom revolt. And then Barry Weiss, an editor brought in to attract more viewpoints, She quit in disgust, and she said her colleagues at the paper called her a Nazi and a racist, and there's a new McCarthyism there that leads to a self-censorship. So I'm sure that the paper wants somebody with a spine of steel, but does it really? Uh, Good luck to whoever gets that job. I I would love to see, you know, the op-ed page was invented by the New York Times in 1970 to provide other points of view and debate that didn't necessarily agree with what's on the editorial page. Everyone knows the Times editorial page has been liberal forever, Maybe in the Biden era, they can get back to more diversity. I don't know. Maybe it was just becoming part of the anti-Trump resistance. But uh, the track record, not so great. Meanwhile, in case you're wondering what the House of Representatives is up to today, nothing. They're leaving town. The entire House session was canceled because of intelligence reports about possible violence at the Capitol today. Apparently, there's some sort of QAnon predictions or chatter or conspiracy theory about today, March 4th, is the day when Donald Trump will be inaugurated again and he will regain power. Okay. Now, there's still plenty of National Guard troops at the Capitol. I can't say, given the trauma of January 6th, that I blame uh, members of the House for thinking, well, we just don't want to take a chance. 
the Senate is in session, and on a, a, the Senate actually has been sort of crippled by something else. The Senate was going to begin debate today, or possibly, on uh, Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion uh, uh, stimulus plan or, you know, COVID relief plan. But uh, Republican Senator Ron Johnson wants, is a delaying tactic. I mean, both sides do this. Wants every page of the 600-page law read aloud, so they're not going to get to it today. But as far as the uh, House, in effect, evacuating, um, intelligence anal analysts have been tracking what's called online chatter by some adherents of uh, QAnon. And these adherents, as I said, March 4th, Oh, because March 4th is the original inauguration date set in the Constitution. It was that way for a couple of centuries until uh, what happened was FDR uh, was elected. We we're in the middle of the Great Depression and had to wait until March 4th to take office. And meanwhile, the Depression was getting worse and worse and worse. So it was moved up to January 20th. Uh, Capitol Police and some members of Congress appear to be taking these latest warnings seriously. Uh, so they moved up a vote to last night so that lawmakers could skip town today. All right, let's get down to story number one. Increasingly heated debate, shall we say, over what's happening in Texas and also Mississippi. I mentioned on the podcast yesterday, and I'm sure you know this by now, that the Republican governor there, Greg Abbott, uh, has decided, uh, defying the advice of the CDC and the Biden administration, to lift all COVID restrictions. All of them, 100%, you know, all businesses can open, all restaurants can open, all bars can open. There's no a limitation on uh, how many people can be in these establishments. There's no sort of, you know, 50% or 25% seating. And the mask mandate in Texas out the window. So uh, in, in a Oval Office pool spray, as it's called, in other words, the president had something to say and then reporters shouted questions. And I don't think he was supposed to take questions, but he did take this one. Biden was asked about what's happening uh, in Texas. And he said, the last thing we need is Neanderthal thinking that in the meantime, everything's fine. Take off your mask and forget it. You know, that's a really sharp thing for President Biden to say. I mean, it's not the worst insult ever hurled. He didn't call these two governors Neanderthals, but, you know, he did kind of did by talking about Neanderthal thinking. It's caveman thinking. Biden feels very strongly that we need another couple of months for more people to be vaccinated and for the decline in new cases and daily deaths uh, to, to remain leveled off. Because the fear is that if, if there's a new outbreak in Texas and there's a new outbreak in Mississippi, and then of course that spreads to other states, that this could set back uh, our progress at a time when, you know, we finally seem to be gaining some measure of control over the coronavirus, although you know, just looking at the figures today, more than 2,300 people died yesterday from coronavirus. So it's way higher than during, you know, last spring and summer. It's just lower than it had been, where as many as 4,000 people had been dying in, in early to mid-January. So that's the debate. These two governors punching back. Mississippi's Republican Governor Tate Reeves said Mississippians don't need handlers. As numbers drop, they can assess their choices and listen to experts. I guess I just think we should trust Americans, not insult them. Well, the insult actually was to you and Abbott, but I, I get the point. Uh, but Reeves did say he encouraged his citizens to do the right thing and wear a mask. Now, I don't know whether he repealed a mask mandate or not. Uh, Governor Abbott in Texas also said that. And here's the thing. Uh, Abbott went on CNBC. This is a pretty mild rejoinder, I have to say. It's not the type of word a president should be using. And look, 
by Trumpian standards, it's nothing. You know, it's just, you know, we call people dogs and idiots and morons. But for Joe Biden, who's tried to lower the tone and the temperature and has talked about more unity and more bipartisanship, it's a pretty much was pretty much of a slap in the face. I wonder whether Biden regrets saying that, whether he planned it or whether it just kind of came out. I think he feels strongly that this is a mistake. Um, but that's where things stand. And in Texas, the average number of new cases, I think I mentioned this yesterday, is 7,000 new cases a day. And there are variants of the virus that have uh, appeared. And a lot of Democrats in Texas think this is awful. Sylvester Turner, the mayor of Houston, called uh, Governor Abbott's decision dangerous. The mayor of San Antonio, Ron Nirenberg, called it a huge mistake. Um, a doctor who's an official in Laredo said he feared the move would eliminate all the gains we have achieved. Well, let's hope for the best. But it does seem to me to be a little premature and a little partisan. Like, it's obviously going to be the case over the next two months with Biden saying there'll be enough uh, doses, I, I pray that he's right, uh, to vaccinate all eligible Americans who want the vaccine by the end of May, more states are going to open up. And slowly, you know, states are opening up schools. Cities and counties are opening up schools. They're opening up restaurants to a certain degree. This is just 100% throw open the doors, uh, forget there's a coronavirus. They're not actually saying that, but that's what the official actions seem to indicate. And I hope we don't, this is not another round of we get the virus under control because people are wearing masks, because they're social distancing, they're washing their hands, they're avoiding crowded places. And then boom, everybody relaxes, particularly in these states perhaps. And it comes surging back. I really hope that this time it's different. Um, but clearly, Biden's words were fighting words uh, for these two Republican governors. In a related matter, we have the $1.9 trillion bill, which is clearly going to be passed. Uh, 50 Democratic senators for, 50 Republican senators against, Vice President Harris breaking the tie. But Biden, and then the, the two have to be reconciled because the Senate version won't have the $15 minimum wage. The House version already does. But there's a debate here, and the Washington Post, to its credit, is covering this, uh, that when Biden proposed this in January, you know, the economy was really sliding and coronavirus cases were surging, and it looked like, you know, spending almost $2 trillion was maybe a good idea. But now, in March, the economy's doing better. The number of new cases, as I mentioned, has plateaued at a higher but much reduced level. And Biden is saying, you know, vaccines for everyone by May. So some policy experts and even some Democrats, uh, says the Washington Post, are raising questions about whether this stimulus bill is now too large, whether it's mismatched for the needs of the moment. Maybe a great idea in January, maybe a not so great idea now. Meanwhile, President Biden has agreed to a last minute change pushed by moderate Democrats to tighten eligibility on the stimulus payments for people earning a little bit more money. Liberal Democrats don't like this. AOC doesn't like this. They want to expand the payments. And centrist Democrats are going to push for more targeting. So I looked at the details here. It's not a radical change. It's sort of like uh, for certain kind of benefits, you, in the, before you could go up to $120,000. Uh, now it's going to be $110,000. Um, look, people who make, let's just, and for individuals, I guess, instead of 80, it'll be 75. People who make, who have families who make between 75,000, let's say $120,000 a year, they don't consider themselves rich. They feel like they need the stimulus checks, which would total $2,000 when you consider the $600 that was passed uh, in the waiting days of the Trump administration. But Biden needs every vote. So he has to, uh, maybe he agrees. Maybe he thinks, well, you know, he said before, 
maybe we need to tighten the eligibility a little bit. Not lowering the amount of the checks, but lowering who would be able to receive them. Uh, and maybe the improving economy is a factor in his thinking. But basically, he can't have Joe Manchin or some other a more conservative Democrat uh, saying, I'm not going to vote for this thing. So he's trying to kind of walk a, a tightrope here uh, without going too far. All right. Uh, story number two. Last night, there's this big, huge debate emerging about voting rights. Not surprisingly, in the wake of what happened in the 2020 election. So last night, the House, every vote for it was a Democrat. There was one Republican who voted for this bill, but he hit the wrong button. And he said, no, 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 you got to change it. Uh, passed it a legislation to create uniform national voting standards. It was titled H.R. 1 for the People Act. It's, you know, the symbolic... Um, Number, meaning this is really important. It was a top priority of Nancy Pelosi. Um, this is kind of similar to a bill that was passed two years ago, but died in the Senate. And I think this bill is going to die in the Senate too. But it's interesting on, on, a, on a political optics level because you got a new Democratic majority in the Senate. you got Biden winning. But you have, uh, in state after state, Republican-controlled legislatures are trying to roll back voting access in reaction to some of not only Donald Trump losing, but, you know, all the complaints he made about mail-in voting and so forth. So what this uh, House bill would do, it would guarantee mail voting, no excuses. You say, I want to vote by mail, you don't need a reason. It would guarantee at least 15 days of early voting for federal elections. It would require states to use existing government records to automatically register citizens to vote. Well, that's a very big deal. Automatically register citizens to vote. Look, folks, this has been going on. This debate has been going on. A version of it has been since LBJ passed the Voting Rights Act in 1965. And in subsequent administrations, the Justice Department would sue states that it felt were trying to make it harder to vote. You have to have voter ID or you're setting up various obstacles. Was that legal or illegal under the 65 Voting Rights Act? What else does this House bill do? And again, I don't think this is going to make it in the Senate. It would restore voting rights to felons who have finished their prison sentences. It would mandate the use of paper ballots. Uh, it would uh, create new disclosure requirements for dark money donations that are hard to track to political groups and require states to appoint independent commissions to draw congressional districts. What? No more gerrymandering? I mean, look, Democrats and Republicans have been gerrymandering like since the dawn of the Republic and create new federal standards for, uh, for election equipment vendors. Uh, and then there's stuff about political advertising. I mean, it's a big wish list for the Democrats. Um, and it's become a lightning rod for Republicans. Kevin McCarthy speaking out against it in the House. It is not designed to protect Americans' vote. It is designed to put a thumb on the scale in every election in America so that Democrats can turn a temporary majority into permanent control, says Congressman McCarthy. Now, look, it is just a fact of political life that when it's easier to vote, the Democrats benefit because poorer people, minority people who tend to vote Democratic just have a harder time coming up meeting tougher requirements. And when it's easier for people to vote, that helps Democrats, but it hurts Republicans. So uh, it's not by accident that Donald Trump in his big CPAC speech last week said, this monster must be stopped. It cannot be allowed to pass. And obviously, that was a very popular position to take at the CPAC conference. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. Uh, story number three. Politico has an interesting piece 
about um, White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain. Ron Klain is a longtime Joe Biden aide. He's got a lot of experience on the Hill. He was, he worked for Biden when he was vice president. Um, he knows his way around Washington. He's been very active on Twitter. And what's fascinating in this political piece is that because President Biden tweets so infrequently, and when he does, it's usually something bland, like all Americans must stand together and get masks or whatever, or I welcome the House vote on HR or whatever. You know, he just he deliberately has a much lower key style than, let's just say, the 45th president. But Klain is tweeting a lot. And Politico says it's, uh, it's Klain who is sort of setting the tone for the White House and that his aides have let reporters know that he operates this on his own, which I can kind of tell. I know Ron Klain, and you can tell when this stuff is kind of written by committee. To outside observers, including Capitol Hill aides, lobbyists, and the news media, says Politico, many of which have their sets phone, excuse me, many of which have their phones set to ding every time Klain tweets. I've, I never did that even with Trump because, you know what, I have a life. I don't need my phone dinging every five minutes. I can find the tweets on my own. His feed is kind of a Rorschach test, either reinforcing the idea that Ron Klain is a partisan combatant masquerading as an honest broker or the work of an expert multitasker with a knack for documenting Biden's incremental achievements. So there is a strategy here. Take Klain's decision, for example, to use Twitter to elevate a news story because he retweets stories that he likes. Elevating a story about which Mitt Romney unveiled a plan to provide at least $3,000 in child benefits. And that, so just by tweeting about it, Klain is kind of signaling, because he doesn't just, these, these are his opinions, obviously he works for the president. Lending bipartisan support to similar efforts being drafted by Biden and Senate Democrats. Now it's not going to make it, I believe, into the coronavirus stimulus bill. But if Romney could get enough Republicans to go along, and obviously he's a minority voice in the GOP at this point, and Biden could get enough uh, Senate Democrats to go along. He's talking about, you know, reducing or wiping out child poverty by giving parents $3,000 in child benefits, which, of course, a lot of Republicans are going to say we don't have the money. We've just, we're about to spend $2 trillion. And is that fair to people who don't have kids and all of that? But the point is that Klain puts it out there to try to sort of build support for it. Um, a senior Republican aide telling Politico, no name attached, Resistance Twitter trolls rejoice. You have a comrade in arms in Ron Klain. He has the will, the appetite, and apparently the time to join you in trolling senators, elevating uh, deep thinkers like Jennifer Rubin, who was a conservative columnist in the Washington Post, who's now pretty much pro-Biden, and carelessly retweeting things that he later has to delete. I don't know if there maybe there's one or two instances of that. Klain, I didn't know this, has tweeted every day uh, since Biden took office. He has tweeted an average of 34 times a day, as many as 65 times in a day. So look, so, you know, Twitter's out there. It's a megaphone. Somebody's got to use it. Um, he often retweets a uh, senior producer for Lawrence O'Donnell's MSNBC show. He's done that 37 times. He starts out with his first tweet a day around 8 a.m., rarely tweets after midnight, at least on weekdays. Maybe he's going to sleep. Um, if you were only to consume news through the lens of Ron Klain's Twitter account, the Biden administration would seem like a very serious place where very serious people do very serious work. It's about rebuilding trust in government. Okay, so what exactly is the objection to that? Uh, using Twitter to be serious, to talk about legislation and substantive issues, 
and send that signal. Now, does it reflect the messy backroom dealings that go on and um, the pressure tactics that go on? Of course not. You know, people choose to project a certain image on Twitter. But I can't see where anybody has a legitimate objection. You don't like the particular tweets. You think, you know, Ron Klain is taking this position on behalf of President Biden. Fine, go after it. It's supposed to be a debate. Klain knows how the game is played, but it's fascinating that he's using it so much because as president doesn't really sort of do the Twitter thing. Again, he tweets, but I don't even know if Biden writes all his own tweets. And I don't say that to be insulting. All right, story number four involves Elaine Chao, the former transportation secretary. She also, of course, is married to Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. So an IG report has come out saying that Elaine Chao, while she was a cabinet member under Donald Trump, repeatedly used her staff and her position of power to boost the reputation of her father, who's a shipping magnate in China, and otherwise aid her family. Now, the bottom line here is the IG felt strongly enough about these alleged violations by Secretary Chow that the report was forwarded to the Justice Department for possible prosecution, but the Trump Justice Department declined to go any further. And that, you know, is that politics? Maybe. Or maybe they just didn't think there was much of a case there. So what are some of the things that were found by this uh, Inspector General? Four kinds of ethic violations, including planning to bring relatives on an official trip to China. Um, so, you know, you're really not supposed to bring your family when you're the Secretary of Transportation. Requiring the transportation's um, public affairs staff to help market a book written by her dad. Um, it also found she had had employees handle personal errands, such as shipping Christmas ornaments. Uh, you know, it's a minor violation. You're not supposed to do that. Um, and it was the public integrity section, which is pretty independent of DOJ, that declined to pursue this on a criminal basis. Uh, Elaine Chow, uh, look, she knows the rules. She had been uh, eight years as George W. Bush's labor secretary. She is pushing back, um, including against suggestions that DOT was steering disproportionate amounts of grant money to Kentucky, which, of course, is the state represented by one Mitch McConnell. So in her response, Elaine Chow says, this report, or on her behalf at least, oh, this is a spokeswoman in a written statement. Why do journalists say written statement? How many other kinds of statements are there? But a Chow spokesperson saying, this report exonerates the secretary from baseless accusations and closes the book on an election year effort to impugn her history-making career as the first Asian-American woman appointed to a president's cabinet and her outstanding record as the longest tenured cabinet member since World War II. Um, so playing the ethnic card, right? Um, you know, what does that have to do with the allegations? Look, the fact that she is of Chinese heritage obviously plays into the allegations because her father is a very successful businessman there, and that was part of what was under scrutiny. So was it an election year effort? Uh, was it all the IGs political? This was done. This was started during the Trump administration. So you wouldn't think that there'd be a political motive to have the inspector general, supposed to be independent of the Department of Transportation, go after not only the secretary, but the person who happens to be married to the Senate majority leader at the time. Uh, one last note on this. Chow made extensive plans to include family members and stops she planned to make on a trip to China in 2017. Uh, but the, it was ultimately canceled after concerns were raised. So there you have it. Uh, and story number five, you know, it's just fascinating me for me to watch every day uh, on Andrew Cuomo. And, um, you know, yesterday was the day he had the news conference and he 
apologized and apologized and apologized. And some people thought it was a heartfelt apology. Some people thought it was not a heartfelt apology. But you had Governor Cuomo in this televised news conference saying such things as, uh, I'm embarrassed by this. I didn't intend this. Uh, I understand I made people uncomfortable. That was wrong. By the way, I don't plan to resign. That doesn't come as a shock to anybody. The governor's going to try to stick it out. He's buying time here. Uh, and all of the other things that he said, um, this is the way he is. He hugs and kisses people, men, women, people who are old, people who are young. You know, that's very different, obviously, than asking one of your top aides or an executive assistant who's 25 years old uh, about her love life and do you, have you ever slept with the older men? when there's a, such a large age gap. Um, anyway, what I started to say before I got off on a different track is that, you know, I have the TV on all day and I'm flipping around because that's part of my job. Every hour now, it seems, there's a story about the Cuomo scandal on MSNBC. Every hour, there's a story about the Cuomo scandal uh, on CNN. And those networks were ignoring or playing down or barely touching it when the story first broke. Fox was covering it a lot. This is all Fox doesn't like Democrats covering a lot. Well, now everybody's covering a lot because it's an important story. Um, all of that uh, leads me to this piece in The Atlantic, you know, Liberal Magazine, uh, jumping on this, saying that it's a uniquely New York story, the third-term governor's son of a three-term governor in a fight involving the always poisonous politics of Albany. But there's a larger lesson here, says The Atlantic, David Graham, he says, first of all, one-party rule. New York is, a, is functionally a single-party state under Democratic control. Hasn't had a Republican governor since 2006. That was George Pataki. Hasn't had a Republican attorney general since 1998. And Andrew Cuomo was attorney general before he was the governor. Uh, and it just goes to show you that uh, Democratic dominance or one-party dominance can lead to corruption. Although, as the piece points out, there's Republican corruption too in New York. The, uh, the person who was the long, the most powerful Republican in the state, Dean Skelos, uh, was convicted of federal uh, corruption charges five years ago. What's really fascinating about this piece is about the media coverage. Cable coverage of Cuomo was certainly too credulous. Yeah, you know, Andrew Cuomo was a hero at the beginning of the pandemic. But the New York press corps has little affection for the governor. Why? Because he gets in their face all the time and they have a tangentious relationship. And print coverage has been especially probing. So it's not an accident that that second story about Charlotte Bennett, the accuser who said the governor wanted to sleep with me, was done by the New York Times. Um, he quotes one writer as saying, hardly anyone in New York experiences Cuomo the same way studious news consumers or reporters do. In other words, Readers know that Cuomo is a thin-skinned, often deceptive bully. I'm just reading from The Atlantic, folks. Uh, even as the rest of the public has largely failed to grasp his flaws until recently because he has gotten good TV coverage. What's happening now is that fans of Andrew Cuomo, the television character, are being introduced to Andrew Cuomo, the newspaper character. And basically, with the, the great cutbacks in local news coverage across the country, The Atlantic suggests that there may be other governors or state officials or mayors uh, who have their own scandals that haven't come out because there's so much less aggressive and just less fewer reporters given the, the, the collapsing business model of newspapers. And now I have a kicker. So yesterday, 
I did a piece for Special Report on Fox News about the Dr. Seuss controversy. And it was a very fair piece saying how he's a beloved children's author and uh, his critics say this is cancel culture because six of his books are now being pulled off the market. By the way, uh, this has been unbelievable publicity for Dr. Seuss and Seuss Enterprises because something like nine of the ten top books on Amazon right now are Dr. Seuss books, including uh, a couple of the books that are being pilled, pulled. So, you know, no publicity is bad publicity, right? But in any event, I mean, I, I talked about how there were some uh, racist images in some of these books, and it was a legitimate debate, but I also raised the question about, you know, but do you hold every past author who grew up in a different era when perhaps society was more prejudiced to the, the woke standards of 2021? So the New York Times today has a big follow-up piece about Dr. Seuss, controversy, cancel culture, blah, blah, blah. And listen to this paragraph, because, you know, there was a lot... It was like, well, the conservatives on Fox are going crazy over Dr. Seuss and don't they have more important things to worry about? Look, first of all, I'm not a conservative, I'm not a liberal, I'm a journalist. Second of all, you know, everybody, every family knows Dr. Seuss. You've got kids, you've read Dr. Seuss, so it's a story that touches everybody. Here's the paragraph from the Times. The announcement seemed to drive a surge of support for Seuss Classics. Okay, let me get to the key part. The estate's decision which prompted breathless headlines on cable news and complaints about cancel culture from prominent conservatives, represents a dramatic step to update and curate Seuss's body of work, acknowledging and rejecting some of his views while seeking to protect his brand and appeal, and raises questions about how an author's work should posthumously be curated. Okay, I love the part about breathless cable headlines because, and prominent conservatives, because that's what the Times is covering here. Apparently, the breathless cable headlines were on target. You know, wherever you come down on the great Dr. Seuss controversy, it was covering an important cultural story. And now the New York Times is covering a cultural, cultural stories, but it has to kind of say, well, we're kind of holding our nose doing this because it became really big on cable and the right wing went into a tizzy over it. So we're going to do it too, but we're going to cover the same issues. And that's what this is. It's just kind of like a hold your nose thing. Now, the Times did cover the original decision. I'm not saying the Times was, you know, completely ignoring this. I just, there's something about the breathless he cable headlines. By the way, are there any headlines on cable that aren't breathless? That's what cable news does, folks. Um, but I think it's a really legitimate story. And especially the larger question raised about what do you do about people from an earlier generation and, you know, the, should all their books be banned? Should all their... Uh, negative stereotypical characters or insensitivities to minorities be just wiped off the shelves or do you deal with it in a more rational and thoughtful way? Thank you all for listening. Remember, you know, you can get this uh, podcast on your Amazon device or at Amazon Music or on Google Podcasts or Apple iTunes. We'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzBeat. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.